Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 4. Welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zerman Jr., and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although we sometimes stretch into the 1930s. And in this episode, I will be talking about the biggest double cross in pro wrestling history. But first, so my update for this week is after having COVID for two weeks, my breathing has finally returned to normal. So it's back to researching the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. <laughs> Oy vey. Uh, this project has proven to be as frustrating as I thought it would be when I first took it on. And I already discussed a couple weeks ago the issues about it not being a linear, linear history. Well, one of the other things I've discovered as I've gone through over the ensuing weeks is I'm about through the first 17 years of the championship and I've found less than a dozen title defenses and there's a lot of reasons for the inactivity some of it was due to the fact that a lot of the champions were trying to pursue a world title match with William Muldoon the problem for most of them is they were catch wrestling specialists well the problem for all of them was they were catch wrestling specialists and Muldoon only defended the championship via Greco-Roman uh, wrestling rules. And several of the American heavyweight champions, like Joe Acton and Evan Strangler-Lewis, thought that if they could get at least one fall to be in catch-as-catch-can, they could hook Muldoon and injure him. They realized that they neither one actually none of them uh, that were wrestling at the time, none of the champions nor any of the other wrestlers, were probably strong enough or skilled enough in Greco-Roman to beat Muldoon at his specialty. But they thought that if they could get him to take at least one fall and catch wrestling, that they could hook him, hurt him, and possibly win the championship by forfeit. But Muldoon was too smart or wasn't willing to risk his championship under those circumstances, so he would only take championship matches in Greco-Roman wrestling. That didn't prevent the champions from trying to pursue these matches, which was part of the reason for their inactivity. The other part of them being catch wrestling specialists were in the late 1800s, up until about the mid-1890s, a lot of wrestling matches in the United States were contested by different styles. So if we had a three out of five fall match scheduled for the main event that night, the first fall might be Greco-Roman, the second fall might be Catch-as-Catch-Can, the third fall might be Sidehold, the fourth fall might be Cornish Wrestling, the fifth fall might be Cumberland Wrestling. And there were wrestlers that specialized in all these styles of wrestling. They didn't want to risk getting injured wrestling a catch wrestler for a championship that wasn't their specialty style. So if 
I am a, a specialist in Cornish wrestling, which is wrestling conducted with jackets like they wear in judo. The chances of me beating a Lewis or an Acton or next to nil in catch wrestling, and there is a high chance that I would be injured. So for that reason, it was very difficult for Acton and Lewis and then Martin Farmer Burns to find challengers willing to wrestle them in a straight catch wrestling match. And then, of course, the last one was the fact that Lewis, who held the champion longer than anybody else, his title reign lasted from 1887 to 1895. He caught typhoid pneumonia three times, and it almost killed him the second time. So for all of those reasons, the first 20 years almost of the championship are pretty inactive. I do know that it does become a very active championship in the early 1900s when Dan McLeod, Tom Jenkins, and Frank Gotch are all wrestling for the championship. And despite the fact that there was a lot of inactivity, you know, leave it to guys like Evan Lewis to have some memorable matches uh, when they were defending the championship. There's a interesting match I found between him and Tom Cannon. Uh, that would be an entertaining match uh, today just because of all of the controversy and everything surrounding it. But if I can keep my sanity, I will finish this project. Um, if it wasn't such an important championship in pro wrestling history, I would probably just drop the project and move on to something else because I've got another couple areas that I've wanted to research for a while. And I've discovered some other people I'd like to look into doing this research project, but this is the first American-based heavyweight wrestling championship, and I really do think that a definitive history needs to be done on it, so I'm going to stick with it even if it gives me more gray hair and frustrates everyone involved with it. So with that update, let's jump into this week's show. So when I first started blogging back in 2013, I originally did it to capture the family history for my mom and my Aunt Willa on my uh, natural father's side. But I had always wanted to write history, so I also started writing St. Louis history and combat sports history at the same time. And I, one of the first matches that I researched in 2013, when I did start writing about pro wrestling on the blog, was a match where the 45-year-old Stanislaw Sabisco, double-crossed world heavyweight wrestling champion Wayne Big Mun in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I originally entitled the, well, I didn't originally, I entitled the post Stanislaw Sabisco in the last shoot wrestling match. I've had to since <laughs> correct that post because most of the assumptions I had going into that match were wrong. I thought Stanislaw Sabisco forever changed professional wrestling when he double-crossed Munn because Munn was a pure performer, as we've talked about in previous episodes. And I thought that once Zabisco shot on Munn, that the promoters never entrusted a performer with the championship again until Ric Flair got the championship in the 1980s. Well, that was laughably incorrect. Uh, the, the whole purpose of professional wrestling is to make money and greed makes promoters and managers do foolish things and Big Wayne Munn would hardly be 
the last pure performer that they put a title on and then regretted it later on when a shooter or a hooker shot on them and legitimately beat them. The whole first five years of the 1930s is nothing but double cross after double cross. However, the other things that I had wrong about it were I also thought because I had read this in several different sources, but I had never found the actual newspaper from that match, that Zabisco had pinned Munn time after time after time, and the referee who was under the pay of the Goldust Trio eventually had to declare Zabisco the winner of the match for fear of the fans rioting, which the fear of the fans rioting part was true. But the fact that Zabisco pinned him over and over and over again until the referee had no choice but to award him the match was not correct. So let's go back and then we'll go forward into the actual match. In 1920, late 1924, Ed Strangler Lewis had been the world champion for almost three years running. He had won the title in December of 1920 and surprisingly only held it for about five months before he lost the title to Stanislaw Sabisco, who was in his early 40s and had just returned from Europe where he had been a prisoner of war in Poland. Zabisco drops the title back to Lewis in early 1922 and by all accounts Ed Strangler Lewis despised Vladek Zabisco, Stanislaw Zabisco's younger brother, and during his second title reign would not give him a title match, allow him to make the big money of the main events. But he still continued to have rematches with Stanislaw Zabisco, and they generally enjoyed good relations, which is important to the second part of the story and the double cross. Lewis, after having held the title for almost three years, Billy Sandow, his manager, and Lewis, along with their promotional partner, Joseph Tootsmont, thought that Lewis might be getting a little stale as champion. For those previous three years, they had made more money than any professional athlete in the United States, including Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey. Jim Cornette often talks about on his podcast that promotional teams during the heyday of professional wrestling had a license to print money. And that was no more true of any combination more so than the Gold Dust Trio. They dominated professional wrestling in the 1920s. Toots Mott joined them around 1922 when they had, when Lewis had got the championship for the second time. And while Billy Sandow was the manager, Mott was considered a promotional genius. He's the one that came up with angles and storylines and unique ways to drop the title that created the package show. And they really dominated professional wrestling, but they also made a number of enemies. The first thing that they had done to make enemies was they started booking their wrestlers, including their champion, like a vaudeville uh, circuit. So they would go into towns, and if you wanted Lewis to wrestle on your card, you had to take all of the Goldust Trio wrestlers that were on the card, 
and the gold dust trio would get a percentage of the gate for booking but I don't want to say this wrong they would get the majority of the money and they would give the promoter for each town a small amount and then they would pay the wrestlers and everything that wrestled on the card this was different from how it had been done in the past and what this was one of the reasons it made Mont and Sandow a lot of enemies is promotions that had established towns so like Jack Curley in New York Paul Bowser in Boston Tom Pax in St. Louis Lewis would come to town and defend his championship against the top wrestler for that promotion. So for Jack Curley in New York, it could be Vladek Zabisco. For Paul Bowser in Boston, it could have been Joe Stecker. Uh, later on, it would be like Dano O'Mahony, who was a pure performer, but who was a big star for Bowser. Well, the Goldust Trio basically ended that. So if you were a promoter that didn't have a well-established local star, you didn't really care because you would make more money when Lewis and all the wrestlers associated with the Goldust Trio promotion showed up to your town. But if you already had an established town like Jack Curley and Paul Bowser, you were getting minimal uh, return on your investment and you weren't even getting to feature your top stars. So who was going to come see your top star the month after the Goldust Trio pulled out of town if none of your wrestlers, including your top star, was even on the card? So that made a lot of enemies out of the promoters and some of the other wrestlers. Lewis also, for the first time, he got along for the most part with pretty much everybody. Uh, he was not a fan of Jim Londis, but Lewis w did not make enemies the way Sandow and Mont in particular made enemies. But he made two significant ev enemies during his second title run. One was Vladek Zabisco, who we talked about just a few minutes ago, who he detested. They had had a couple of fistfights in previous years because they just couldn't work well with each other. And the second one was Joe Stecker. And the, Stecker was Lewis's biggest rival. They wrestled three legitimate contests in the mid-teens with neither man winning until Lewis finally won. It was either the third or the fourth contest between them, but they had wrestled for three or four hours before Lewis finally won. And in the first two matches, Stecker actually had more of an advantage but eventually Lewis caught up with him and, and passed him. There was no incidents that really happened between Lewis and Stecker, but they just, I guess the natural rivalry caused a dislike between the two of them because they never saw eye-to-eye. Eye eye. They always had trouble working together. And during this second title reign, Lewis froze both Stecker and Zabisco completely out of ever getting a title shot, which cost them significant money because if Lewis would have defended his title against Zabisco in New York or Stecker in Boston or Stecker in Chicago or Stecker in St. Louis, those matches would have drawn tremendous money for both men. But Lewis was unwilling to give a payday to either guy because of his personal animosity towards him. 
Lewis starts to get a little stale as champion in the late 20s. I'm sorry, late 1924. So Billy Sandow hatches a plot to put the title on Big Wayne Munn. Big Wayne Munn was a college football player for the University of Nebraska. He was about six foot five, 260 pounds. He was very impressive looking physically, but he had never wrestled and he had no wrestling ability whatsoever. Sandow sees big money potential in Munn though, which he was right about. Munn routinely drew 10,000 fans in Kansas City, which was a big Goldust Trio town. So Sandow decides he's going to take six months to prepare Munn to be the guy that takes the championship from Lewis. Neither Lewis nor Mott wanted to put the belt on Munn because they told Sandow if he wrestles anybody that has just a, a modicum of wrestling ability, he's going to be helpless. He's a pure performer. It took them six, one, six months just to get him able to wrestle a worked match credibly. They started him out. He would do squash, squash matches at first. Matches lasting a minute or two. And initially he used a headlock, which was Lewis's finishing hold. But a couple months prior to the title match in January of 1925, they realized that would probably be a bad idea. So they switched it to the crotch hold, which was a common finisher back in the days of Gotch so they went ahead and used that in December of 1924 Mott carries Munn to a 30 minute match and they think well he's as good as he's going to be in a working match you know he can credibly have a match with Lewis and beat Lewis he ends up taking the title from Lewis, but Lewis and Mott are still so nervous that Munn has this championship. Lewis has booked himself on a European tour for the first two months in 1925, so he tells Mott, you have got to keep an eye on Munn. If anybody shoots on him in the ring, he's cooked. So Mott went with almost with Munn to almost all of his bookings for the, the time that Lewis was in Europe. But Sandow tells him, don't worry, I'll have him lose to the old man. Not lose to the old man, beat the old man. The old man was Stanislaw Sabisco, who was 45 years old, but who everybody, uh, they've always billed him five years older than he was, so fans thought he was 50. Zabisco and Mont were the only two wrestlers that Lewis felt could beat him in a straight wrestling match. Even at his advanced age, Zabisco was one of the only two people Lewis put on his level. Zabisco would normally be the last person you would want to wrestle a pure performer like Munn who would be helpless. But Sandow and Mott and even Lewis to a degree trusted Zabisco so they said, okay, with Mott there, go ahead and match him with Sabisco. And they had one or two matches, actually, uh, one in Kansas City to a huge crowd, where Zabisco put Mont over, I'm uh, Zabisco put Big Wayne Munn over, and 
so the gold dust trio relaxed. Okay, we we've got we can trust Stanislaus Zabisco. And they only intended for Mon to be a champion for nine months to a year and then Lewis would take the title back. So seeing that they've had two good matches now with Zabisco, Sandow goes ahead and books Zabisco to wrestle Munn again for the championship, this time in Philadelphia in April of 1925. And they were so relaxed with Zabisco at this point that Billy Sandow, Ed Strangler-Lewis, who was back from Europe, nor Joseph Tutsmott bothers to go to Philadelphia. Max Bauman, Billy Sandow's younger brother, was the agent for the... Uh, card that night so he would bring the wrestlers in he would pay them and he would collect all the box office receipts the match starts and within a minute or two Munn is looking very very nervous now remember I said a lot of the stories said that Zabisco pinned him repeatedly and I this all comes from the fall guys uh the, the fall guys write up about this match said that Z Zabisco pinned him repeatedly, but that was not the case. Within a couple of minutes of the match, Munn gets a very concerned look on his face. The referee realizes something's up, and he doesn't really know what to do. And then Zabisco, who very carefully keeps his feet back so Munn can't do a takedown of his own, gets a hold of Munn with his own crotch hold and dumps him for a pin for the first fall. Zabisco does not leave the ring, between, which was customary then, during the 10-minute intermission, 10 to 20 minutes, depending on the match and the stipulation and everything. The wrestlers usually went to the back. Munn went to the back. Zabisco stayed in the ring and did not leave. Max Bauman comes out and is seen talking to Zabisco, but Zabisco just sits in his corner and just shakes his head and refuses to look at Bauman. Munn comes back out for the second fall. Zabisco very quickly again pins him. The referee counts. The referee is under the control of the Goldust Trio, but he's so scared to death that the fans in Philadelphia will riot if he doesn't award the pin that he goes ahead and awards the pin. And Zabisco becomes the new world champion. And the conspiracy is betrayed when, as soon as he wins the second fall, 15 Philadelphia police officers come out, surround Zabisco, and take him back to the back. Because the conspirators... and So who we know that was involved in the conspiracy to double-cross the Goldust Trio? Jack Curley and Paul Bowser were the money guys. Joe Stecker and Tony Stecker approach Vladik Zabisco about getting his brother to double-cross Munn and then drop the title to Stecker, which he would do in St. Louis uh, the next month. The, the only questionable participant in this whole thing, and it's interesting because it's St. Louis and it's Tom Pax, people have always suspected Pax was involved, but they can't say for sure. But when Zabisco dropped the title to Stecker, it was in St. Louis uh, under the Tom Pax promotion. So he may or may not have been involved. But Zabisco's 
the Steckers, Jack Curley, and Paul Bowser were definitely all involved with this double cross. And this double cross really screws up wrestling for the next three years. So Stecker and Lewis both claim the championship. Lewis beats Munn. Stecker beats Zabisco the following month. They both claim the world championship, and it just leads to a bunch of very bad years for pro wrestling from 1926 to 1928. The conspirators all start to uh, fight amongst themselves, and Stecker barely defends the title because he's so scared of a double cross. Lewis just continues to act like he is the champion, and many people still recognize him as the champion, but the title is divided until 1928. Eventually, Stecker and Lewis do wrestle each other. And then, after that match, Mont, who was furious over Sandow putting the title on Munn in the first place, finally leaves the Goldust Trio. But he always said that he intended to leave as soon as Munn had been uh, double-crossed because he knew that Sandow was never going to listen to him and he didn't want to be caught like that ever again. Mott himself would be one of the great double crossers in pro wrestling and he was involved in most of the double crosses of the early 1930s. <coughs> so I was always fascinated about that match and researching it I was shocked by how much that I had thought was right was wrong. As I said, this would hardly be the first or last double cross of a performer. It did not fundamentally change the industry, but it did make a uh, big star of Stanislaus Abisko, even though he should have been a big star on his own merits anyway. <coughs> I've written two books about Zabisco. The, the first one is Double Crossing the Goldust Trio, which is actually about this incident. But it, it goes from Lewis winning the title in 1920 and Zabisco coming back from Europe all the way up to the title changes in 1928 and what happens to all the main people involved in this double cross, Steckers and Zabiscos and Lewis and that Mont. That book covers that. The other book I wrote on Stanislaus Zabisco was Gotch vs. Zabisco, which covers his first time in America from 1909 to 1914. So I compiled a list of the 10 greatest legitimate professional wrestlers. The only person that had a chance in that top five to be number one other than the person who was number one and the person who was number two was Stanislaus Zabisco. Even at his advanced age, Ed Strangler Lewis said he was one of only two wrestlers that could have troubled him in a legitimate contest. And in his first go-around, he lost a controversial match to Frank Gotch when he was an absolute novice at catch wrestling, and Gotch refused to wrestle him for the remainder of his career. The only guy that Gotch ever really, you could say, ducked was Stanislaus Zabisco.
So I hope you found that the, the true story of the double cross interesting. Um, and hopefully you'll be more interested in Stanislaus Abisko because he's going to factor into our next episode. But before I get into that, I just want to give one update, one hopeful personal opinion. So I would determine when I started this podcast that the first four episodes, I was going to release four episodes in June to get the podcast set up. But that after that, I was dedicated to two episodes a month on the second and fourth Monday of the month. And I've really been pleasantly surprised about the response to the podcast. However, right now with the the level of work I'm doing and the research and everything, I am going to keep it at two episodes a month. But that could change in the future, particularly if I continue to get the good feedback about the podcast that I've received so far. But the next episode will be released on Monday, July 11th, 2022. And before I talk about what we're going to talk about in that episode, last week I had talked about Vince McMahon stepping down as the CEO, but as we've seen on Raw and SmackDown, that's a probably a political move. He plans to fight to stay the CEO and chairman of WWE. But one thing that has come out of this, besides the fact that Stephanie has taken over in the interim, is it looks like Triple H has now been brought back to the Performance Center and to NXT. And I will say that prior to Vince losing his mind and taking Triple H out of NXT, NXT was the only WWE show I found watchable anymore. There are good segments every once in a while, particularly on SmackDown with Roman Reigns and Paul Heyman. Uh, And Drew McIntyre is a tremendous talent. But for the most part, those shows are unwatchable because Vince has a juvenile sense of humor and the, the skits and the stupid things that they put on those shows make it very difficult to watch. NXT was the closest thing to a wrestling show WWE put out. If you watch the WWE pay-per-views, they're normally much better than the television shows because you don't have all the skits and the silliness. It's more like a wrestling show, although they're all way too long. But NXT was the closest thing to a actual honest-to-goodness wrestling program, and they had their silly stuff. You know, in the modern uh, day uh, pro wrestling, I think that that's fine. I just think that overall, it's people watch it because they come to watch wrestling, not sports entertainment events. I hate to break it to you. You're the only person that thinks that. But it was the best show of the bunch. Now, I don't think it'll probably go back to what it was. It'll be a mixture of what Vince has wanted over the last few months and Triple H's vision. But... I think that the product was much better under Triple H's leadership and hopefully they can have a show that's worth watching. I probably haven't watched the last four or five episodes of NXT even though there are wrestlers on there I'm interested just because the the show is it's the silliness you'd expect from Vince and one of the things Kaylee Ray was a superstar in NXT UK and excellent wrestler 
and now she's Alba Fire losing to green girls that are not even close to her skill level. So hopefully it'll, the show will start to make a little bit more sense than what it does now. So that was my editorial minute. Well, that was it for this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. Next episode, I decided to talk about some of the crazy claims I've heard from fans and readers over the years. I think fans and readers want to believe certain things about wrestlers that they really like. And they'll make some claims that when you look at the facts and that surrounding the match, it's just hard to impossible to believe. And one of these hard-to-believe comments I received was about the 1914 bout for the uh, Greco-Roman World Heavyweight Championship between Stanislaus Zbysko and Alex Aberg. This match occurred right before Zbysko went back to Europe, where he would remain until 1921. And we'll look at the, the claims that were made in connection with this match on the next episode, and... We will look at what really happened in the match and how much it drew, and you can determine for yourself whether you think those claims are legitimate or not. A reminder, that episode will air on Monday, July 11th, 2022. So, Kinsman Jr. is the place to check out the show notes for today's episodes. You can see what I'm working on currently in a list of books I've written if you're interested in digging deeper into this era of professional wrestling. Thank you for listening today. As always, you can view the show notes for this episode at kenzermanjr.com slash episode 4. I would also be grateful if you would rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. That helps tremendously with keeping the podcast visible so people who have never heard of it can discover it. If you have already done this, thank you so much. And if you would like to comment on this episode or ask a question, please go to kenzermanjr.com, find the contact page at the top navigation, and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And and don't forget, you can also ask questions through that contact page as well. Until next time, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.